Well, it is a great honor to be preaching to you God's Word today. We've been spending some time here in the book of James these last week and, and now this week, tying it with our overarching sermon series on the ordinary means of grace that Pastor Craig has been guiding us through. And, and we are asking ourselves a question last week of how do we live wisely out of the ordinary means of grace? So last week we covered that wisdom is lived inside and out, that, that you cannot just be a person who thinks rightly and be considered wise, but rather through, as James provides, meekness, humility, a pure heart, being a peacemaker. We consider ourselves people who see wisdom as a lived-out reality with our neighbors, with our communities, with our families. But what are the dangers to peace and wise living? What are the biggest threats to living out wisdom in the ordinary means of grace? And maybe the better question for us is, what are the, the biggest threats that lie within the body of Christ, within the church today? If you have spent any amount of time growing up in the church, you will know that the reality of division in the church is something that causes devastating harm. Maybe you remember best friends, family members, or even pastors and elders that have caused great spiritual damage because of division in the church. And for some of you, these memories are the most difficult, most painful to manage. Today, we are reminded of the sources of these devastating sins and consider a better pathway moving forward for the Christian community. So, with that in mind, please take out your Bible in whatever form you have it, analog or digital. Turn with me, tap, swipe, rotate. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. This is also located in your pew Bibles on page 1012. And please stand with me as we read the words of the living God. This is God's holy word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, may the preaching of your word remind us of the gift of grace given to us. We, who were once filled with envy, evil desires, and enmity towards you, 
we are the ones who are given grace. May we live as those transformed by that grace. May your word pierce through our hearts and minds and souls and strengths to be a living and active word within us, the body of Christ. Let the Holy Spirit now speak and do that great work within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a famous story of the great famous preacher Charles Spurgeon and his ministry that is recounted by several biblical commentators that I think highlights the main threat and danger to the body of Christ. And here's this story. Uh, One time, a lady came up to Charles Spurgeon to encourage him in his ministry. And she walked up to him and said, you know, I pray for you every day that you might be kept humble. Spurgeon replied, well, well, thank you so much, but you remind me of failure in my duty as a pastor. I've never prayed for you that you might be kept humble. Dear sir, she cried, there is no need for such prayers, for I am not tempted to be proud. Spurgeon Riley replied, how proud she was to obtain such a delusion. (laughs) You know, what makes this story great is that it speaks to the truth of the human condition. We often think of the problem in the world or in, in the context of James in our passage today, we think of the problem in the church as being outside of us, out there, that we hold the solutions and the keys to peace around us. If only people would listen to our counsel, our direction, then peace would be in the world and the church and thousands would be saved and healed and restored. But in doing so, we often and regularly find ourselves in a state of naive delusion, neglecting our own faults, our own rebellion, and our own sense of judgment. You see, James 4 is really a continuation from last week about living wisely, that the work of peace that we talked about last week comes from wisdom above and not from the brilliance of our own minds. And this is the extension of everything that we have covered, by the way, in James this year. All right, so just to kind of recap chapter 1, that, that trials and struggles should be met with a, a hopeful eschatological joy. Right? Chapter 2, that believers should be doers of the word and impartial to others, that, that faith must be accompanied by works. Chapter 3, that, that we should all watch our words and wisdom. And, and these find all of their culmination in the practice for believers in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And what James is focusing in on our passage here today is that the root cause of the difficulties of living in community is the threat of the peace of the church from being peacemakers. So he's, he's trying to parse out what are the biggest threats to peace in the church? Verses 1 to 4 give us that answer. In verse 1, James recognizes that the community which he is writing to is, is quarreling, it's, it's fighting, and fighting. And we don't know what kind of fighting was going on in these churches in the dispersion, but, but James isn't concerned with the outcome of the conflict as much as he is concerned about the heart of the conflict. We don't know what sides were formed, but James isn't going to be impartial, some sort of like neutral referee in this. James instead says to both parties, the problem is you. It's not others, it's you. Now, before we move on, I want to emphasize something that I've been saying in the book of James over and over, and I I want to make it clear again. James is a book that is not written to a specific individual. It's written to churches. And while it may have individual applications that we can 
in, in spirit-led, right, uh, just reading of our scripture that we follow individually, James is concerned more about these principles that he's writing in this book about the corporate church. I cannot stress this enough because otherwise James becomes used as a self-help book rather than a way and means for the church to live out what it means to be in the gospel. In fact, almost all of the yous that you see in James where it says you, 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 are plural forms. This is where our Bible translations can sometimes be unclear. I I wish that your Bible could use Southern grammar in these instances. In fact, the next time you read James, every time you see a you, replace it with a y'all, a better version of the second person plural. Just do it, because that will change the way that you read James. So when James says in chapter 4, verse 1, that what causes quarrels and fights among you, the better translation is what causes quarrels and fights among Yes, now we're being biblical. In particular, it's your passions at war within y'all. That word for passions is not simply just strong feelings, like we at Redeemer have a passion for missions, Fred's piano playing, Slack channel emojis. The word James is using for passion is the pursuit of selfish pleasures to disrupt peace. Selfish pleasures to disrupt peace. Think of it as an immature, whining church, which is so fixated on their own way that they steamroll and combat anyone who shares any bit of disagreement or discord against them. I mean, think of the worst preaching that you've ever heard, right? These churches that almost exclusively talk about what they're against so much that they never say what they're for, right? So, so James's main point is he's trying to communicate this, that the greatest threat to peace is more about what is happening inside our church than what is happening outside our church. The greatest threat to peace is more about what is happening inside our church than what is happening outside our church. So James is saying that before we head out into the world into conflict, before quarreling occurs, we have to ask ourselves the question, what passions are at war with the wisdom that God has called us to live in? What passions are at war with the wisdom of a gentle, pure, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere heart that we talked about last week? What passions, selfish pleasures, are so blinding to us that we are ready to fight anyone and everyone who gets in our way? Because the condition of wicked, passionate minds bleeds itself into its natural consequences, which is these next three verses, verses 2 to 4. Y'all desire, so y'all murder. Y'all covet, so y'all fight. Y'all do not have because y'all do not ask. Y'all do not receive because y'all spend it on y'all's selfish passions. These are the result of an inward heart of the church manifesting into outward actions of pain, misery, and death. In other words, envy leads to the destruction of others within the church. You see, there's a connection here with envy, with war, because that would have been in line with the culture and the thought of the Greco-Roman Empire. The the writings of Greek philosopher Plato demanded that the logic of envy, competition, all those things, was the elimination of your opponent. It was the pinnacle of sort of that that braggadocio machismo that we talked about last week, right? Utter destruction is the result of envy. And James is saying is that what is considered appropriate by the spirit of their age, and by the way, the spirit of our age, 
is not always how the church should get its ethics, its practice. And we know, by the way, what James is saying is true, don't we? Right? This isn't just a theory you spent, especially if you have spent any significant time in the church. Ask any Christian about the churches they've been to, and it won't take you long before you reach a sense of heartbreak over division, conflict, discord, and even spiritual death. How the church held the authority of man over the authority of Scripture and found themselves completely broken and torn apart. So church family, this, this means that we need to do a little bit of reflection about our community. We cannot be too busy trying to play church that we forget what is happening inside our own hearts. Have we forgotten already that because Christ has made peace with the Father for our sins, that we cannot be succumb to the petty divisions that have wrecked havoc and discord amongst the thousands of churches that closes its door every year in the United States? Have we gotten so proudful in our own salvation that we forget that the people that we stand shoulder to shoulder with singing God's praises together this Sunday are people in need of the same grace and mercy that you do? Do we really wish to have only a gospel that changes the hearts of the people that we like and wish condemnation and hell in the church of the people that are just different from us? You know, we love Scripture because of its truth, but sometimes the truth hurts because the truth is talking about us. Verse 4 puts it bluntly. You adulterous people. He's using the language of the Old Testament prophets who would call the people of God adulterers for forsaking their relationship with him. Israel was supposed to be like a faithful bride, and yet they've chosen to be just like the rest of the world in conflict, and in doing so created war against the very God and the very community of God that was promised to grant them peace. You see, their passions exceeded their praise. They would choose the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life that we read in 1 John today rather than union with God as Christ's bride. And James is reminding his community and us the greatest threat to peace is more about what is happening inside our church than what is happening outside our church. And the truth does hurt, but the only place where we can start to live wisely is when we start being honest about ourselves. And it's only when that happens that we can begin to move into verses 5 through 8 and see real hope from our estate. It's able to see the giver of grace. If the greatest threat to peace is in our own hearts, then we need to look to the giver of grace, verses 5 to 8. Verse 5 begins by asking us to remind, to remember the source of wisdom, source of wisdom, that is the Word of God. Now, perhaps you are wondering what specific Bible verse is being quoted here in verse 5, where he says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And some of you might be troubled to know that a specific verse like this in the Old Testament and New Testament doesn't exist. This shouldn't make you worry or fear, though. James is simply quoting a summation of Scripture's teachings and using the phrase Scripture says it's sort of just, just giving the overarching summary of the Word of God. 
Exodus 25, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 30, 14, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. And James would have been familiar with Paul's teachings, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that God's spirit dwells within you? He's sort of mashing all of these up to give a summary of God's word in this verse 5. And so James is doing this to show the, that the answer to unrighteous jealousy, un, unrighteous passions which lead to death, is a righteous jealousy which leads to grace. So the solution from an unrighteous jealousy that leads to death is a righteous jealousy that leads to grace. Unrighteous jealousy leads to godless division. Righteous jealousy leads to God dwelling within us. Unrighteous jealousy leads to war. Righteous jealousy makes peace. Unrighteous jealousy leads to legalism. Righteous jealousy leads us to grace. And the promise of this text is the reminders of how abundant God's grace is. That he gives more of it. This is a grace in verse 6 that is given to those who are humble enough to recognize that they need to receive it. This is a grace in direct opposition to pride. It's a grace that causes us to submit ourselves to the only salvation and source of grace that we can find, the grace of Christ, that gives us the strength to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil so we can draw near to God and that he will draw near to us. He will draw near to us. The promise of God is that those who are weary, broken, humbled, will find a peace in the arms of their Savior. The promise of God is that those of you who are fed up and tired, just done with everything that has been going on in the last two years, is that he will draw near to you if we would only draw to him. The promise of God is that in response to our envious and straying heart as a church, that if we pray and humble ourselves, he will be near to us because he is faithful. He, give us, he gives us more grace to envious, divisive, unjustifiably angry sinners like us. He gives us more grace when churches fail, divide, and hurt others. He gives us more grace because that is precisely what grace is. Thomas Manton the Reformed pastor and stated clerk of the Westminster Assembly gives this great definition. He says, Grace is nothing but introducing the virtues of God into our souls. Christian, does this not change the heart and posture towards one another in the church? Will we draw near to God and let go of our desire to control the destiny of Redeemer Presbyterian Church? to control our city, its politics, to control our families, to control our agendas, and give them all up to a God who gives us more grace for each and every single moment? Can we stop condemning ourselves and our struggles? Can we stop leaning on our own self-sufficiency that we can somehow get ourselves together before we run to Christ? Will you go to the giver of grace and receive it simply because he is generous enough to give it to you? You see, this is the invitation and the good news of the gospel. God invites you to receive his grace through his son, Christ. This offering is free for you 
as a church, it's free for us. God knows the disruptions of peace inside our hearts. He, he knows that we as a church will pursue foolishness. He knows all of these things. And he still invites you to come. R- reminds us that all of our sins are removed. Reminds us that our shame has been taken away. Reminds us that the punishment has been paid that we don't need to be masochists and harm ourselves in order for God to receive us. He gives more grace and more grace. Will we receive it? Because if we have that humility and that posture, verses 8 to 12 allows us a window to see how we bring about the work of peace in light of the grace that we've received. So verses 1 to 4 is is sort of the, the greatest threats to peace. 5 to 8 is, is this giver of grace. And verses 8 to 12 is, is now the work of peace in light of the grace that we've received. Verses 8 to 12 starts with two exhortations and two labels. We are to cleanse our heart, hands and purify our hearts because we're both sinners and double-minded. Now, Scripture is not speaking here of our sort of coronavirus Purell and Lysol cleanliness world when he talks about cleansing our hands. Uh, James is reflecting back to the Levitical law in the Old Testament, which calls for sacrifices only to be made by priests who had to make themselves clean by giving sacrifices. You see, coming to God required and demand purification. Through your hands, sacrifices were offered. Through your hands, objects were declared clean by the priests. And, and through your hands, others were, were ordained, right? James here is, is saying here that you need to cleanse your hands. You need to clean yourselves in order to approach God. They need to endure hardship, distress, and labor, all three which are, are covered in the sense of this word wretched that you see in these verses. That in reflecting on their sin and their enjoyment of sin, that they move towards mourning and weeping. True repentance. The sin which they used to laugh about, the sin that which they enjoyed so much is in every way a sin to be rejected, despised. It's like looking at old photos of the clothes you wore when you were in kindergarten, right? You're just ashamed at all the choices that you or your parents made, right? Me with like the straight Korean bowl cut, Pinocchio suspenders, glasses so big that they could like get like antenna signals, right? I I looked like the Asian Harry Potter, right? I thought it was just hot stuff, right? But now when I look back at those photos, I'm just ashamed of all the choices I've made. And that's what James is getting at here in verse 9. We look back on our sin and we're just disgusted. We must examine ourselves as a church and consider our behavior and posture. And turn our laughter about sin to mourning and our joy about evil into gloom. That our church should examine itself and see how its former foolishness led to heartache, worldliness, and following a friendship with the world when it should have been looking to God who calls us his friend. We must repent. As a church of our lack of love towards one another, we must repent as, as leaders of the church for the ways that we have failed in serving and loving our people. We must never allow ourselves to think that we as a church have nothing to be sorry for, nothing that we could improve upon, nothing in which we are weak. 
Because, see, when we start believing in our own power instead of the power of God at work within us, we, we begin to do horribly demonic things in the name of God where God has nothing to do with it. Perhaps you can think of such a church. Churches that we know exist and continue to plague our world with its evils. Churches that plant itself in in poor and desperate communities and demand that they give all their money to the church to pray for private jets and lavish lifestyles in the name of God. Churches that we know that plague guilt and shame upon those who are struggling and battling mental illness and depression, saying that their struggles are because of a lack of faith rather than thorns in the flesh. Churches that proclaim that Christ isn't enough and that we must do somehow much, much more. Churches that hide abuse and fail to hold their leadership accountable for the carelessness of bad shepherds. Churches that participate in the worldliness of the age, either in materialism, postmodernism, marketing demographics, political power, philosophical defense of the indefensible, ideas rooted in secular sociology rather than the words of Scripture. Those churches which fail to defend the orphan and the widow, to welcome the stranger to be generous to the needy and to give to those who have needs, who fail to love those created in the, image of, in, in, the, in the image of God in all of its beautiful tapestry, its pride, its passions, its quarreling, and it's exactly why it leads to a fall. But the promise is that we are, when we are humbled by our sins as a body of Christ, the promise is what becomes true and real in verse 10, that God will exalt us. You see, one thing that James is trying to eliminate is the idea that embracing grace means ignoring sin. Grace that covers all my sins as we sing does not mean that we can continue sinning in the same degree and enjoyment as we have and will continue to do. To do this means only embracing a threefold chapter of the gospel. It means that we only embrace creation, fall, and redemption. We must remember that the Spirit of God that is dwelling within us is calling us as a church to be a new creation in Christ. We aren't just restored and cleaned, but that He is restoring us into the image of God. The activity of the Christian is not merely to look at Christ and the cross and claim justification, but to also claim sanctification and the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in faith and obedience. That the word, prayer, sacraments, these, these ordinary means of grace for the church would be held and believed in to transform us from once what we once were to who we now are. But remember what we talked about last week about the weapons of the Christian not being the weapons of the world, but meekness, humility, purity, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, the way that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected, the way that Christ has called his church to do the same. So how do we live out these exhortations in verses 7 to 10? Look over these verses again. How do we do that? What strength do we have? Here's the key. How do we submit? We submit ourselves to God because the Son submitted His will to the Father. How do we resist the devil? We resist the devil by remembering the one who avoided the temptations in the desert. We draw near to God because of the God who came down to earth to draw near to us. We cleanse our hands by putting on the hands of Christ who were nailed to the cross. 
We purify our hearts not through our own self-sufficient effort with our own blood, sweat, and tears, but through the efforts of Christ and His blood, sweat, and tears. We put on humility by putting on the meekness of Christ and clothing ourselves in His righteousness. You see, to see that Christ is our great brother who takes the selfish passions that war within us, takes our pride and shame and ungodly laughter and tainted joy and places all of that and puts it on himself. He weeps for us. He mourns for his people. And because Christ has made a right relationship with us to the Father for those who come to him by faith, this power is now in us and is leading us to be a bringer of grace and peacemakers to a watching world. In other words, don't let anyone label this church as the frozen chosen. You reformed Presbyterians. Let our doctrine of the Holy Spirit fuel our fight and our battles and our addictions to sin. Let us mortify our former lives that we used to live and recall the warnings of the historical church before us. Churches that were too blind to see its own failures and complicities in the spirit of the age. Let the doctrines of the Holy Spirit remind us to make a right relationship with others around us, our communities, to love God and to love neighbor. Humble, humble ourselves, Scripture says, because he will exalt y'all. So, how do we do this? One immediate application we find in verses 11 and 12, real easy, stop wishing evil upon one another. You see, James echoes our former discussion on the role of tongues that we talked about earlier in the year, that the Christian cannot be spending all of its time finding new ways to destroy one another. The Great Commission is a call to go and be with people to give them the power of the gospel. It is not the commission to go and tweet about that Christian we are really annoyed and call stupid at every social gathering we get. It is not secretly harboring ways to ruin the lives of fellow unbelievers. It is not a call to be territorial about the people and ministry that God has given us. It is not to call out ways in which we are more talented, more capable than any group of Christians who are doing things differently than we are. Church, we are not in competition with anyone because our victory is already secure. We are standing side by side with other believers, marching to Zion, and all of us have a different limp, but we are doing this work together. This is why we pray for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who may come to different theological conclusions that, than us that do not break the bonds of the gospel. This is often known as sort of secondary matters, the, the open hand that doesn't, doesn't assault the, the first-hand matter things of, of Scripture. This is why we pray for gospel-believing, gospel-in-action churches and pastors and leaders why we pray for our Presbyterian counterparts who hold and cling fast to the truth of the word, our, our Baptist friends, even though they don't sprinkle, our non-denominational friends who are oddly enough being called a denomination, we pray for all of them. And we wish them well. 
We can pray for churches who have different methodologies, different approaches to things like the role of church and culture, the role of the church and parachurch, the role of church and community, programmatic versus organic ministries. We can, we can hold these secondary matters in an open hand while acknowledging that convictions do matter. We can stop villainizing brothers and sisters in Christ who come to these different conclusions. And, and don't, don't do this. Please don't. We, we, this is often too much done nowadays. We say X and X person is the greatest threat to the church, is the greatest threat to the faith when it's just simply a secondary matter. We can pray with them instead. We can dialogue with them. Lord willing, we can break bread with these people. We can still be the universal body of Christ on mission together so that Christ can be proclaimed and lifted high and not spend all of our time finding the next church, pastor, or leader to destroy so that we can feel better about the way that we're doing church. James is calling against the inclination of many of us to take the place and the role of God in our judgments of one another. You see, when we do that, what we're saying is that Jesus on the cross wasn't enough. God's judgment when he poured out the penalty of sin onto his son wasn't enough. No, only our sense of judgment, our sense of justice will make things right. And James says that when we've done this, we have now placed ourselves over the law of God and have spoken evil over it. We have tried to take the law into our own hands. And every time we do that, we pervert the gospel. Every time humanity has done that, we have, have this host of unintended consequences. I mean, think of the laws in society that were aimed to end suffering, that only acerbated it for those who needed justice the most. Think of good faith efforts to relieve poverty, only to create more dependency and paternalism. Think of those who use the power of the crowd and the mob to render false judgments and to take the lives of the, un- of the innocent of the unborn, of the marginalized. Whenever we as a society, as a a humanity, as a church, try to take the role of God, the only consequences are the results of the demonic. Remember, true godly wisdom is lived inside out because the gospel is never intended to be preached and then left aside in the treatment of others. That the gospel is always indicative. It's, it's who we are in Christ and then imperative how we live that out in the new creation. The gospel is preached so that the people of God remember the grace they have been given and extend that very same grace to others. To see others as God sees them. To not render false judgments, but to give grace to live out everything that we have seen in the book of James. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, to not show the sin of partiality, to watch our tongues, to be doers of the word, to be wise and bring in a harvest of righteousness, to know that the real evil, the greatest threat to peace is more about what's happening inside our hearts as a church than outside of it. In many ways now we've come full circle in the end of our sermon today. The solutions to the disruptors of peace is understanding how to give peace, to submit and lay everything captive in our hearts that is causing war, murder, covetousness, unholy jealousy, and submit it to a perfect and holy judge. 
to consider and examine us as the body of Christ, to allow these ordinary means of grace to transform us not into critics, but Christians. Not as petty, but as peacemakers. To run away from the very things that we used to cling to and run towards the giver of grace. Church, let us pursue peace by examining the peace that Christ is giving to us here today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It reminds us, Lord, you have already won the battle. You have already ended the war. And so while we live in this time of the not yet, let us draw near to God as a church. Let us be the church, not just as mere critics of the world, not just as mere critics of one another, not allowing our passions to wage war, but, Lord, instead humbling ourselves, despising our sin, taking our cross, and following our great Savior Christ, who has won the peace for us. God, we thank you for your word here today. In Jesus' name, amen.